Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate McCrossum. And I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And today's episode is We Didn't Start the Fire, covering anaesthesia for burn surgery with guest Dr. Karsoon Lim. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Karsoon, thank you for joining us again. Thank you very much. Okay, so let's say we have a 45-year-old male with 70% total body surface area burns, many of them of which are severe. What happens when this patient is finally transferred to a burn centre and what further assessment should be made and how do we prepare as anaesthetists? So I should preface this by saying that the practice difference differs from burn centre to burn centre. Some centres will want to take the patient to theatre immediately to debride the full thickness burns. My centre is happy to wait to stabilise the patient for a day or so and ideally do the initial debridements with a their regular team of burns anaesthetists, burns nurses in the regular burns theatre. So that's what we do. Um, But what the surgeons will want to do is to take off the full thickness burn, the tissue that's been cooked and has no chance of healing. So that's going to be a potential source of sepsis. So that's their priority. That leaves problems with what they then do because you've got a skin defect and you'll need to cover that somehow. The ultimate coverage is going to be with the patient's own skin but sometimes the patient may not be well enough to tolerate grafting because when you harvest a donor site, you create a new skin injury and more skin loss. And the patient may be so catabolic or septic or unwell that they may not actually heal. So it creates a lot of problems of what you do once you've actually taken off the full thickness burn. But that's what the surgeon will want to do for a full thickness burn. For a partial thickness burn, they may elect to try and put on a synthetic dressing called Biobrain. So Biobrain is an amazing product, actually. It's a synthetic silicone and porcine sheet. It looks a bit like crinkly glad wrap. Mm. So the surgeons will want to take these patients to theatre, scrub off the superficial burned skin and apply the Biobrain. The Biobrain seals the burn. So it decreases fluid seepage. It mm. provides skin coverage. It provides analgesia. And it actually seems to turn off the systemic inflammatory response from these more superficial burns. So that's one thing that the the surgeons will want to do really, really quickly. And it's actually a very straightforward anaesthetic. There's minimal bleeding. It's painful because they scrub it with gauze or a scrubbing brush, Mm -hmm. but it could often be done as a quick laryngeal mask GA with some oxycodone or fentanyl. So they're the two extremes of what the surgeons will want to do. So if we're preparing for a major debridement of a full thickness burns, there's lots of things to consider. Firstly, the patients. The patients are likely to be septic. They are likely to have a massive systemic inflammatory response. Um, They may well be on inotropes. They may well be in renal failure. Mm -hmm. 
their coagulation profile may be disordered. Um, they may be hypercoagulable or they may be coagulopathic. Initially, they may be very hemoconcentrated, but after fluid resuscitation, that's likely to return to normal. They will have significant pain. Mm. They are likely to be intubated and sedated with um, an opiate and ketamine infusion. Mm. Access is going to be hard, but I, it's most likely they'll have uh, invasive arterial lines, usually femoral, and uh, also uh, central venous access. Uh, if they're on dialysis, they will have a vascath, which actually is a really good line to give large volumes of fluid through. Physical examination is really hard because they're going to be wrapped up like a mummy. Um, so you're really not going to be doing much of physical examination. I think the key thing with preparing is to actually talk to your surgeons. You really need to know what they're planning to do, what they're planning to debride, and how they're going to debride. Is it going to be a, a full thickness debridement with a knife where there's going to be significant blood loss? Or is it a partial thickness burn where they might be scrubbing or using a VersaJet high-pressure water debrider where there's much less blood loss? Patients get burnt in all different parts of their bodies, so the patient positioning may be difficult. Do these patients need to go lateral? Do they need to go prone? Or do they even need to be flipped from one to the other uh, for different parts of the procedure? Are the surgeons planning to actually graft, which means more blood loss, more skin loss? It's also important to know that Donor sites are really, really painful, so you need to plan for that in terms of your anaesthetic and analgesia. Mm -hmm. Or are they going to put on a temporary synthetic dressing to cover the, the, the areas that they've debrided? Uh, you'll need to liaise with blood bank to get your appropriate blood products ready when you're trying to anticipate the size of the transfusion that you'll need to give and get all your equipment ready in theatres, uh, including warming in the theatre to 28 to 30 degrees because the patients are going to be fully exposed. They're going to cool very, very quickly and we need to minimise the chance of them becoming hypothermic. Mm. Mm. Yeah, so uh, you really need to work on your hydration status. I think particularly the great combination of some sort of multi-resistant bug where you're wearing those gowns, like the yellow gowns mm. or the floor-length gowns, and dehydration and heat is just a great yeah. combination. So physical mm. preparation. Yes, definitely. You need to be well hydrated, and it's really unpleasant. It's hot, it's humid, it's smelly, it's sticky. You're wearing a plastic sheet. You mm. sweat like anything. Mm, mm. Yes, always bring spare undies on Burns Day oh. would be my recommendation. Oh, <laughs> Guys, you're really um you're really selling Burns anesthesia to me. This is um, you know, this is great. <laughs> so we come into theatre and it's just not as easy. You've alluded to some issues with lines and having femoral lines and you know going to different positions for the surgery, but can we just paint a picture about you know, it's not just wheel them in, put them on the table, whack their ECG leads on, you know, even SATS probes can be difficult. So what do you sort of expect when you're setting your patient up for their anaesthetic? So we would connect them to our machine and turn on cefluorine to make and induce anaesthesia as an inhalational induction and then transfer them onto the table. In terms of monitoring, it can be really difficult to get SATS probe on. Sometimes all their digits are burnt. Um, so we would often put a, an ear probe inside the patient's cheek. ECG dots don't stick. Um, we have needle electrodes, but they tend to fall out, and so we tend not to use them. And sometimes we often will do a major debridement without ECG monitoring. Mm. You can't get an NIBP cuff on because the surgeons need access to the skin. If it's a burn, they need to debride it, and if it's unburnt, they're going to be harvesting from there. Mm. So we're really reliant on arterial on arterial lines. IV access is difficult, um, both acutely and down the track, uh, and we 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 use. Uh, central access femoral or jugulars usually and if we need to put these lines through burnt skin you, you have no choice um just and you just recognize that uh, these 
lines are probably going to get infected more quickly. You just have to. Um, we do use chlorhex-coated central lines to try and slow down the infection process, but uh, these patients still get line sepsis and the lines get changed. Temperature monitoring is important. Um, they will already have a temperature probe in and the theatre is warmed, as we've said. We have an underbody warming mattress um, that we can use to conductively heat, uh, transfer heat to the patient. Fluid warming is essential. And very occasionally we'll put in a warming central line called an Alceus that has these um, saline filled balloons that run along their shaft and you can infuse, the saline can be heated to whatever temperature you want and that can conductively transfer heat to the venous blood as well. Mm. So cool. Yeah, no, we don't have that and we don't mm. have the underbody heating. So uh, I'm jealous because our theatre temperatures are usually more like 35 to 40 degrees. Mm, that's <laughs> so that's some cool technology. Um, we would have our blood products ready and we may have a, a rapid infuser pressure device ready to go. Um, mm -hmm. We tend not to run massive transfusions through a central line because the resistance is too high. So we might be putting a rapid infusion catheter or a swan sheath into a femoral vein uh, for the transfusion. Mm. That said, with the surgeons now using tumescent prep, we haven't needed to give a transfusion greater than 10 units um, in the last uh, few years mm -hmm. uh, when we watched most recently. Fantastic. Mm. Now let's go back to our case. So is there anything in particular that we should watch out for with the specific procedure or the different procedures that the burn surgeons do? Are there any pitfalls that we should watch for? I think the biggest thing is blood loss. These patients are usually intubated. We would simply transfer them to the machine and, and turn on sevoflurane mm. and give them morphine or an opiate and ketamine for their analgesia and they're going to return to ICU post-op sedated and ventilated. Mm. But the key thing is blood loss. Um, we used to use, lose a lot more blood, um, but our surgeons have refined their technique. So probably the biggest advance that our surgeons have introduced is the use of tumescent prep. So they will put two litres, they'll get a litre of saline and put two milligrams of adrenaline into there, and then they'll inject that under the escar mm. uh, prior to debridement, and that causes uh, vasoconstriction and much less bleeding than we used to have. Mm. If they are going to take donor skin as well, they will also use tumescent prep under the donor sites. Mm. But we add three milligrams per kilogram of ropivacaine to the tumescent solution underneath there to provide some sort of analgesia because those mm. donor sites can be very, very painful. Mm. The blood loss can be really hard to estimate. It doesn't go in a sucker bottle. It goes on the drapes and on the floor, and it takes a lot of experience to estimate how much blood mm. to give. Um, but I think, as a general rule, it's really, really difficult to over-transfuse a burns patient. And when patients become hypotensive during a debridement, it's inevitably because you're behind and you have the patient has become hypovolemic. Yeah, I guess once you've kind of figured out, you know, you've got your anaesthesia obviously causing a bit of vasodilatation, but once you've figured out kind of that level of uh, how much like on a trope they need to oppose mm. the anesthesia if that's varying significantly that's when you need to get your fluid in would that be kind of the approach you take uh completely and i also find pulse pressure variability uh on the mm. sats probe line really really useful as a marker that we are getting behind you know I, I use a lot of albumin as an initial fluid resuscitation fluid but then you know move to blood and, and other blood products as required mm. i think it would be really nice if we had uh, a rotem or teg to guide our transfusion a bit more we don't actually have one in our hospital yet um so we follow traditional massive transfusion protocols but we're probably giving significantly less 
FFP and erring on the side of giving more cryoprecipitate as you know, the evidence from rotum guided transfusions um, shows how that's very useful. So in this situation, so let's let's take our patient, let's say, you know, we've taken them to theatre, we've done, we've done our proper fluid resuscitation, the surgeons have taken the Escher off, then what happens in terms of the way they decide to close, but also how does that impact on our anaesthetic? The surgeons will need to close with something. Mm. Ideally, if the patient is well enough, they will close with a split skin graft. So they will find an area of unburnt skin and they will harvest that. So they slice through the wavy interface between your epidermis and dermis um, so that there's islands of dermis at both the donor site and on the graft itself. That can be meshed to create sort of a fishnet stocking-like appearance. That allows you to achieve, achieve greater surface area coverage than the size of the initial donor site. And it also allows fluid to seep through um, so that the, a solid sheet of mesh of, of donor doesn't get lifted off. Mm. So, but they'll tend to do that if the patient is well enough. So if they're on a lot of vasopressor support, um, then they'll tend not to do that because the ongoing vasoconstriction may mean that the graft will fail. So then instead they may apply a temporary skin closure. And there's a few options. Um, a few years ago, we were using cadaveric skin from donor um, skin lab, skin banks, um, but that also only achieves temporary skin closure. More recently, over the last 18 months to two years, we've been using a revolutionary product called BTM, which is biodegradable temporizing matrix. This was actually developed in Adelaide and it's a thin layer of polyethylene foam. It's about one or two millimetres thick and it has a, basically an opsite layer, a sealing membrane on the top. And this can be put on the debrided burn bed mm. and left and it achieves temporary skin coverage and it can be left on for somewhere between three and six weeks to allow the patient to start to heal. And over this three to six week period, uh, new vessels actually grow into this foam. It has capillary refill. You can leave it on and patients get physiologically better. They get nu nutrition, they heal, they come off their inotropes. And when they're well enough, then the top layer of that opsite can be peeled off and then the patients can be grafted onto that. And it heals with much less scarring than a traditional graft. So That's we use this uh, for our, the White Island volcano um, survivors that we had, and it worked really well. It allowed us to get the escar off quickly, um, but then allowed the patients to heal, and then they were grafted in stages. So uh, you mentioned analgesia. Is there anything else we need to know? You said may, may just keep it simple, some morphine, some ketamine, uh, anything else? So we use uh, multimodal analgesia, so... It's a standard WHA stepladder, maybe not with non-steroidals because these patients are prone to stress ulceration and they will mm -hmm. uh, prophylactically put on a proton pump inhibitor. Mm -hmm. I think we increasingly recognise that there is a, a neuropathic component to burns pain um, from either the burnt nerve endings or from the donor sites where they harvest through the nerve endings. Mm -hmm. So our patients are started on gabapentinoids very early. We've been using a fair bit of tepentanol over the last 18 months or so and we find that really useful. Yes. Um, the patients are seen every day on, on the pain round, um, either in ICU or on the burns unit once they're extubated. And we also have a chronic pain burns clinic that patients get referred to uh, after discharge as well. Mm. We try and block the donor sites. For, so for non-intubated patients, um, we would block. That's our priority with local anaesthetic. Either the surgeons put local anaesthetic wherever they're harvesting skin from. 
they really like to harvest from the lateral thigh. Um, and so we often do lateral cutaneous nerve thigh blocks to cover the donor sites. Mm. Nice. Out of curiosity, from my experience, you know, doing my training in a major burn centre, I always remember I was told to avoid the use of remifentanil intraoperatively um, because of the association between like a post-op hyperalgesia. Um, what do you, I'm guessing you guys probably avoid it too. What is your normal practice? Uh, we tend not to use remifentanil because it's yeah. really hard to then titrate an adequate amount of post-operative analgesia yeah. when the remifentanil is off. Fair so I, I can't think of a time that I've used it in the Burns Theatre. Uh, you know, fentanyl, oxycodone, morphine with ketamine. Yeah, nice. So going back to our case, so let's say we make it to the end of the surgery and the patient's headed back to intensive care. Um, what kind of shape do you typically send them back in? Are they sort of better or the same or worse than when you um, took them to theatre in the first place? So despite everything we try and do, um, the patients take a big physiological hit for the massive debridement, the hypothermia and the massive fluid shifts. Um, mm. The patients invariably go back more hypothermic. Even if they come to theatre febrile with a SERS response with a temperature of 39, it's not uncommon for the temperature to drop by, you know, four degrees or so. Wow. Try not to let the temperature get too low. So if the temperature gets below 35, 34, it's a sign for the surgeons to stop and for us to start thinking about dressing the patients. The concern is um, the effects on coagulation um, and worsening further bleeding. So they're usually hypothermic. Um, they're vasodilated from an anaesthetic. They, we're often behind with fluids, um, despite what we think is a very, very generous fluid resuscitation. So the inotropic requirement often goes up a bit. Mm. I think they get a kind of a trally response from the blood products that we give. So mm. the oxygen requirements often go up as well. Mm. Even if we send the patients back uh, with a normal haemoglobin and pretty good-looking coagulation profiles, they continue to ooze postoperatively. So their haemoglobin may well be an extra 20 or 30 grams per litre lower um, that, that night in ICU, and they may get, require further blood products, mm. um, what they look like immediately at the end of the case. So, look, in terms of um, mortality, I remember traditionally learning that an indicator of the mortality or what would not be a survivable burn would be 100 minus age, and that would equal the percentage of total body surface area burns that a patient can tolerate. However, um, I've noticed we're bringing patients to theatre that well exceed that kind of rule mm. and the burn surgeons are saying that they're getting more and more better results and that patients are becoming more salvageable because of better surgical technique and better burns coverage. What is your opinion on survivability as a concept? I think we've definitely seen uh, adult patients who have burns of over 80% and even over 90% survive. Mm. But those decisions to whether to treat or palliate are really difficult and re really require multidisciplinary approach early on because it's a really awful experience to be a burns patient. You're mm. in hospital. Uh, if, if you've got a major burn, you're going to be in hospital for six to 12 months. Mm. You're going to go through multiple procedures. You're going to have extreme pain mm. and you're going to end up quite scarred and physically disfigured. And it's going to consume enormous resources for the hospital as well. So those decisions to treat or not to treat are really difficult, but ideally should be made earlier. But uh, we are definitely not using that rule and um, giving patients a go if everyone 
agrees that it's in the patient's best interest to go for it. And if we go for it, we we go for it um, and put everything into that patient and trying to get them to survive. What about long-term outcomes for burn patients? So it's obviously a very long and damaging road um, through an acute severe burn, like you were saying, um, and it can, separate to the 6- to 12-month hospital admission, they can be affected for years afterwards, as well as the physical problems associated with the burn, but the mental health effects, you know, from the initial incident, but also in all of the treatment that they go through. Um, so what do we actually see in these patients long-term? I, I think... This is probably the most amazing thing for me because we see these patients come back years afterwards for scar revisions, contracture mm. releases, reconstructive work, and it doesn't never ceases to amaze me what shape they come back in. After two years, pretty much every single patient is off all analgesics, um, which I find amazing. You know, they get discharged on multimodal analgesic, gabapentinoids, got a lot of stuff, but they come back and they're off it. Mm. And... They are usually incredibly resilient and they've just moved on with their lives. We, our Burns Ward has a, a medal from, from the Berlin Marathon. There was a German girl who was burnt in the Bali bombings and she sent her Berlin Marathon finishes medal to us mm-hmm. as a mother thanks afterwards. And that's not unusual. These patients cope remarkably well. Um, they've been through something that's really hell on earth uh, to go through a major burn. And I don't know if I could go through it, but mm. they they do and they come back. And even the mental health patients who self-immolate, often they come back and their mental health is significantly better and they may even be off antidepressants um, mm. when they come back. It's, it's quite impressive and amazing to see how well people recover from major burns. Well, Carson, it's been a great chat today, uh, but you're not off the hook yet because at the end of every episode of Deep Breaths, we ask what we've learnt this week in anaesthesia and it's you're our guest, so it's your turn. So, Carson, what have you learnt this week in anaesthesia? So this week I saw for the first time the use of inhaled prostacyclin and milrinone uh, for pulmonary dilation for a patient with severe pulmonary hypertension. Oh, wow. Uh, it wasn't my patient. I, I was just watching another anaesthetist do this. Severe pulmonary hypertension requiring a toe, and this was given via an ultrasonic nebulizer to the patient in the induction bay prior to induction of anaesthesia. And so that's something I can add to my I'm inventarian for use because pulmonary hypertension absolutely terrifies me. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect you're probably not alone there. <laughs> wow, that sounds incredible. Have mm. you ever seen that before? No. No, no. neither have I. That's amazing. Mm. Look, Carson, it's been a fabulous episode. We've learned so much about burns anesthesia. We cannot thank you enough. Thanks for your time. Thanks for your preparation. Thank you very much for having me. You've got a great podcast and there's lots of members of my department who are now fans of yours as well. Oh, that's great to hear. Great to hear. We really appreciate your time. And it's really great to get some guests from interstate as well. Absolutely. uh, Over Zoom. So we look forward to doing it again soon. Well, that's all we have time for on today's episode of Deep Breaths. As always, you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Please recommend us to your colleagues and you can find us on all your major podcast platforms. And if you know someone who'd be a good interviewee, please put us in touch. That's how we found Carsoon. Thanks for listening and we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.